Thank you so much for tuning in to Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Bianca Neal, visiting scholar at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice in the Rutgers Graduate School of Education and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institution. Today's podcast episode explores the academic and life journeys of Latina professors. In my scholarship, I noticed the gap in guidance for Latinas navigating the academic terrain into the professorate. This was initially prompted by my discovery that Latinas are gravely underrepresented in the professorate, which contrasts the current budding and future growing population of the overall Latina community. I'm here with our invited guest, Dr. Martinez Ramos, professor in the Department of Sociology and the inaugural director of Latino Latina Studies minor at Texas State University. She has mentored over 30 undergraduate and graduate students and is also the director for Center for Diversity and Gender Studies at Texas State University. Welcome, Dr. Martinez Ramos. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your time. I know it's valuable. Um, how would you describe, let's go back to, to when you were young, how would you describe growing up? Um, I, I know you grew up on the West Coast. Uh, specifically, where did you grow up and what was um, elementary and middle school like for you? I grew up in a little small town in the Salinas Valley in California. It's, the town is called King City, California. And um, at the age, I think it was at third grade, I remember very vividly third grade, uh, we actually moved out of town into a little location where my parents purchased a home and it was called Pine Canyon. And Pine Canyon, we didn't have a park. The park was outside, right? So it was a small country town, but the area that I grew up with was even outside of town. So um, I grew up in a very rural area where there was farm workers. It was farming all around me. And it's one of the most beautiful areas I, I, I've always seen. I grew up in it. It's just beautiful. If you've ever been to Salinas, the Salinas Valley, it is the what we call the salad bowl of the world because that's where a lot of our strawberries, your spinach, your lettuce, and at the time there was a lot of grapes, and I think there still are a lot of wineries in that area. I do want to know, what was it like going to school there? What was the community like there? Well, I went to school during the 1970s um, and the 1980s, and it was um, a, a community that was, I would say, more isolated than other communities because it was rural. And the demographic uh, groups that were there primarily was primarily Mexican-American and Mexican and white. As you transition from middle school to high school, is it the same same community, same experience, or is there are there any differences? Yeah, it was it was the same community. My my mom went to school there, and um, but she never graduated from high school. My aunt did graduate from King City High School, so it was just one district. You know, one small town of less than a thousand students. I mean, less than a thousand people. And I think my graduating class was about 150 students. So it was a very small rural environment. Let me just, I think it's really important to know that King City's right at the cusp or right near the Santa Lucia Mountains, 
And if you go on the other side of the mountains is Big Sur. So Big Sur's not far, and then Monterrey, and then you have Santa Cruz. So my ancestors are all buried from Santa Cruz, Watsonville, wow, Salinas, down to King City. Um, where was it, when was it that you had your first aha moment when it came to learning in regards to your interest in education? Was there a moment where you just realized, I really like learning, I really like school, or, or what was it like for you? I really liked school from kindergarten. I just remember going to kindergarten. My mom was really involved in my education. She, we didn't have a library um, that was really big, but she took me to the little small local library. And um, I just loved reading the books. Mm. I love hearing my mom read to me. And so that really sparked my love for reading books and learning. Um, and then my dad was an outdoors person, so he would always take me outdoors and teach me about agriculture. So he took great pride in the work that he did. So sometimes we, on the weekends, he would drive, we would drive his big Ford. He had a big old Ford, 350 Ford truck, and we would drive out into the countryside where the, the farming was at, right? And he would point out all of his, the areas that he was responsible for, like the, you know, the vineyards. And then he would explain to me how to take care of wow. certain vineyards and what he had to do. Um, then he would tell me you know, the different crops, like, oh, this is tomate, this is tomato, these are chiles, and this is spinach, and these are onions. And so the, the outdoors, as well as the library, those are the two things that has sparked my love for learning and to this day those are the two places that motivate me the most and then the other thing that we did a lot was we did go to the beach a lot so um and the way we went to the beach was through the back roads so the santa lucia mountains that were behind king city was the space that i also i still admire and draw inspiration from you mentioned your mother, um, she did not graduate from high school, but your aunt did graduate from high school. What prompted you to not only graduate from high school, but go to college? Well, I think that my parents instilled in me the, the importance of getting an education, uh, like so many other parents. My father was um, formally, somewhat formally educated in Mexico. You know, he was literate. You know, he could read and write. Um, he reads and writes in, in both Spanish and English. And at the time, to be um, educated meant that you knew cursive writing. So my dad um, really put a strong emphasis, or he really was, had, was prideful of the fact that he knew cursive writing, right? And even to this day, he will send me uh, cards, you know, Christmas cards and birthday cards and Mother's Day cards you know, and writing me nice letters through with his cursive writing. My mom was too, but my dad made it more of a big deal. And so I, I loved, I, I always write through cursive writing. Uh, people say, well, that's kind of old fashioned, but um, that's something that I still do to this day. In other words, when I want to write down my thoughts, I usually write them down first before I type, type up some of my my papers and my reports or, or just some thoughts. 
But my parents really stressed the importance of getting an education and that the education was the pathway out of poverty, right? Because even though they were hardworking people and they told me that you can work hard, mija, pero, you know, you have to work smart. And they had great faith in the, in the schools and in, in going to a university, getting educated, getting educated, formal, formal education so that I can have better opportunities. My mom was a feminist. Uh, she, she really instilled in um, me being or myself getting involved in lots of different organizations. I was the only daughter, uh, although I have two older brothers. And so she, I think she felt a little bad that I didn't have any sisters. So she got me involved early on in, I was in brownies and Girl Scouts and baile folklorico, even though I wasn't really a good dancer. My dad emphasized that I needed to learn that just to stay connected to my culture. Um, and so my mom encouraged me to get involved in sports. The only thing I didn't get involved in, it was music. My brothers were involved in music and I regret not being able to be in band, but I was involved in sports. My dad was an, an athlete. He would, he played professional uh, baseball in Mexico. Uh, my mom was more shy, but it's interesting that she, she was really shy and recluse, but she was very involved in my education and took it very seriously to be involved. And one of my most memorable and prideful moments is my mom coming into, it was during back Cinco de Mayo, my mom came to my second grade classroom and showed students how to make tortillas. And I was so proud of seeing my mom up in the classroom, um, you know, teaching other students something about something that I loved. Right, and the students were like, wow, Gloria, you know, your mom makes some excellent tortillas, and they, we all enjoyed them in the classroom. I just love the fact of just seeing, uh, just that mom, I feel like my mother was present in, in growing up in the classroom as well, and it makes such a, it made a huge difference for me. And so I can imagine that, I see the joy that's coming across when you're sharing it. Um, when, when you did go to college, what yeah. was that experience like for you and your family? When I went to college, it was really hard. So, you know, here I'm excelling in school. I did, uh, the only thing I didn't do is a lot of arts. So that didn't qualify me to go to a four-year university. So in California, you had to have some fine arts. And I, I lacked that requirement. So I went to a, a, a two-year university, two-year college, Hartnell College in Salinas, and commuted 50 miles each way I took all the sciences. I had all the math and science background. I had all the English background that was required. It just, I just missed the fine arts. So I did two years at Hartnell College. And my mom thought, well, that's great, Gloria. You know, you can go, you can go get a job now with your, you know, two-year degree. And from her perspective, have going and getting an inside job whether it be either an administrative, like a secretary, um, a dental assistant, something that didn't, a job that didn't require me to work outside because they were working outside in their feet, in the fields, right? Or um, in, in the food processing industry, which was 
very difficult work. It was very laborious. And so I said, no, mom, there's this thing called the bachelor's degree, and it requires another two years, but I have to go to a different university. And at the time, each way, north and south, it was 100 miles away from home. So it was really hard for me to move 100 miles away from home. And so um, uh, my, my parents had a very difficult time accepting the fact that I had to move to San Jose. I chose San Jose. Um, and either way, was San Luis Obispo or San Jose to go to college? That was the closest. Um, she wanted me to be close to home still, just to stay connected, um, and similar to other Latino, I think other Mexican-American Latino families. Uh, I know things have changed, but I think that she was really scared and concerned for my safety. Um, by letting me go off to college because it was so unfamiliar to them, but to both of them. But the good thing is that I had cousins in Mexico that got, um, in Mexico, my cousins are highly educated. They're college educated and they're a little bit older than me. So this college going conversation was occurring. They were talking to my dad from Mexico about, oh, you know, so-and-so is going to college. So my dad was very supportive and said, okay, you know, we have the support. We he wants he wanted to be supportive of me in going to college, and so that he communicated with my mom in being supportive. So that helped, but it was really painful. It was really hard. There was a I would say a good year of melancholy, sadness. Like there was a deep sadness, and um, and I tell students that you know Latinos are not used to this empty nest syndrome. <laughs> And my parents, my mom was going through this empty nest syndrome, I think, of me moving on to college. It was really hard. Um, I think that it was interpreted as, you know, I'm not coming back. Um, and I said, I'm coming back, mom. And I would. I would come back home for the weekends, touch base, and then, I'm, you know, talk to her. And then I would go back to San Jose on the weekend. I just love the, the fact that you were able to... Um just continue to make you first it was 50 miles then it was 100 miles so your next your next trip was a little bit longer where did you go after that so after san jose state i went to university of michigan so usually that has been my style i always take little like a little step a little step and then i take a a bigger larger leap right and that has been my style of leadership sometimes, and even in my mentoring with people. I tell people, and I got it from my dad because my dad was a baseball player, and he would always tell me, Gloria, you know, Mika, you know, if you get on base, right, get that base hit, base hit, get on first base, right? And then once in a while, you might get a triple, you might get a, and if you're lucky, you'll get a home run, right? But get on base, get on base, but you know, strive for that triple and a home run once in a while. And I kind of did that with my college education and that I took risk. And some people use the word risk. I took small risks, you know, safe risks. And then I took really over, you know, um, about a higher risk. And so University of Michigan Ann Arbor uh, going to get a PhD was that higher risk. So the interest in becoming a professor, was that something that you came up with, that somebody suggested? How did that even come about? 
you know, when I went to San Jose State, I did feel like I didn't belong. Um, and I did have some reservations of whether, you know, I could compete and be able to do um, college level work. But I met some really supportive professors, um, professors in both in my social science and women's studies programs, Mexican-American studies, and several, several of them pretty much took me under their wings and taught me or explained to me what academe was and what was research, and I really liked it. They mentored me in, in explaining and sharing with me what the research, what research was, and then I had a knack for it, and then they said, look, you can do this as a career. You can go on and get a grad, go get a graduate degree. It's called a PhD, and you too can become a professor like me because I really was inspired by my professors, and I said, I want to do what you're doing, right, with the kind of work that you're doing, and they said, okay, Gloria, if you want to do what I'm doing, this is what you need to do. You need to go get a PhD. I didn't know what that was. And that, and I said, well, what do I get? Where do I get a PhD? Where do I apply for that? And they said, well, you need to go to graduate school and you need to get prepared for graduate school. But to get to that point, you need to get some research experience and then you need to get a little bit of leadership experience, right? And so they just took it step by step of what I needed to do uh, at that time. And then they told me at the time, you need to apply for programs in California and then you need to apply for programs outside of California. And, and most of them mentioned go to the Midwest or the Northeast to go to graduate school. And that's what I did. I applied by, by the way of a program called Project 1000. At the time, there was a special project called Project 1000 out of Arizona State University, where the goal was to increase the number of uh, Latinos going into graduate school or enrolling into graduate school. And they gave me the opportunity in that they paid for my GRE training, they paid for my GRE test, testing, and then they gave me one application. There was one app that they sent to 20 institutions across the country. Honestly, that's amazing because it also, I don't, you know, obviously you said it doesn't exist now, but that's amazing because it actually facilitates a specific need um, in being able to increase the rate of uh, professors and, you know, practically, it's not just, you know, talking about it, but very practical. I'm going to say that I learned this information from participating, you know, I was, I've always been social. I've always was involved in uh, organizations at San Jose State. And one of those organizations was called the Latino Leadership Opportunity Program. And my professor, Maria Laniz, Dr. Maria Laniz, was the coordinator of that program at Stanford. And I remember her inviting me to participate, to apply and participate. And it was through that program. And it, it's, um, it was coordinated by, or it was implemented by the Inter-University for Latino Research. I think it's called Inter-University for Latino Research which still exists to this day. It's a consortium of institutions that are Latino research institutions all over the country. And um, they had a program that where they taught Latino undergraduates leadership and Stanford was one of those places. So 
I was one of the reps from San Jose State. Me, I was myself and another gentleman who were selected from our institution to be part of this program. And it was this program that I got a lot of information about. I was going to ask what communities were helpful along your journey, and it sounds like that was one of the most impactful. Uh, were there any other ones that were helpful as well? Yes, I think that the faculty and staff at San Jose State University were very helpful in um, embracing me, making me feel that, you know, at the time, which were very few Mexican-Americans and Latina students in college, they, they, there was a group that just supported the students, and then um, that made me feel welcome. And then there were also a, there was also a group at Michigan as well, mm -hmm. as well as other students of color. At San Jose State, it was the Chicano Latino faculty, but there was also a, a diverse group of faculty, meaning uh, I was mentored by a black, Asian, white, feminist, lesbian, gay and lesbian community that came together. And they were working on what we now call you know, DEI, they work, right? The diversity, equity, inclusion, and access work. At the time, when I was in college, it was called Equal Opportunity Program. It was about creating opportunities for those who don't, who have less opportunities based on their background of being low income. In regards to your research and, and your experience at, um, I guess, so many different things, right? You're moving to Michigan, so that's a, a significant move. And then you are starting research there. What was that experience like um, emotionally, uh, mentally? Well, I embraced, so when I got accepted to Michigan, I was so excited. Um, I actually received the phone call from Dr. Gilberto Conchas, who's now a professor at Penn State. And he called me to congratulate me that I was accepted. And I was just so excited about the opportunity to uh, go to a major university to learn about research, right? Because everybody told me that the University of Michigan had one of the best social research uh, programs in the country. So I wanted to learn about how to conduct research. You know, people focus, said they wanted to go to graduate school to get a PhD. And my intention was more to learn about lots of different research methods, uh, quantitative, qualitative. Um, I knew there was so much that you could do with this. I was really inquiry-based. My motivation was to learn more about how to gather data, collect data, how to report. I was really nerdy in that sense. <laughs> and so, um, when they told me that Michigan was one of the best universities and had one of the biggest, largest uh, libraries, I, that's what excited me. Because where I grew up, uh, I had a really tiny library. In fact, in King City, where I grew up, we had um, a Monterey County mobile, like a, a school mobile, like a bookmobile. So the bookmobile would come every Tuesday, and that was my library. So I really dreamed about going to school at big, with big libraries, and Michigan was that place. You can find everything under the sun, and if you can't, they'll look for it for you. They'll get it for you. So I was really excited about that opportunity. 
And at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do research on. But um, the good thing is that when I got accepted, the professors told me, well, you don't have to have a real clear idea, Gloria, but here you can discover what you want to do research on because we have so many opportunities for you to discover that, to explore all those interests that you may have. So um, that was re that's one of the reasons, that was some of my experience, and that's the reason why I went to Michigan. The other piece is when I learned about Michigan, that it attracts so many people, people from different parts of the country as well as the world, that also excited me too, and that I was learning with people, uh, diverse people, people who were different from me, and I could learn from them as well. So I was really excited about that. So you transitioned from researcher to, to your doctorate and then becoming a professor. Where did, where did the idea of becoming a professor come in? Because if you wanted to research, like, or how did you fuse the two? Because you do a lot now. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I did want to become a professor when I was, you know, I wanted to be like my professors at San Jose State. And so they just said, well, this is what you got to do. You got to do research, Gloria. And so I said, oh, okay, that's the pathway. You do your research, you write up, you present, you share your research, right? It's sort of, you know, in this inquiry process. And so um, at Michigan, we were trained more for the professoriate, right? So it's heavy, it was heavy put upon me that you have to do research and work with some professors that are doing some cutting edge kind of work. And when I started the first year, you know, the first year you just do your kind of orientation. I was just getting used to what the program was about, taking the courses. And then, tragically, my mother was diagnosed with, with cancer, kidney cancer, the, after the first year that I was at Michigan. So I had to stop what I was doing. I was planning to come back. In fact, I did come back. I went back to Michigan in September, not really knowing the severity of my mom's diagnosis of her kidney cancer. And then I had to go back after she called me and said, you know what, Gloria, um, I, she basically was pretty blunt and said, I don't have much time. I have about, the doctor says, has a, I have about three to six months to live. So I told my professor, I have to go back home. I have to stop out. I had to, I had to drop everything on that, se that September and literally fly back. So like I moved back in, in August, at late, late August, and like two, three weeks later, I got back on a plane and moved everything back to help my mom go through this process of her cancer. She died uh, in about three, three months. And then I was very, um, it was very, I was very sad and I would say depressed. And um, I just remembered at the time my, my spouse, who was my boyfriend, uh, my, my fiance, who said, look, Gloria, you know, you can't leave money on the table. And you just, he motivated me to go back to college. He's like, you know, we need to get you back on track and do what you love to do. And my mom, before she died, said, you need to do what you like, the, what you like the most and do what you're most passionate about. And, and so I said, okay, I'm going back to school. At the time I got married then, throughout this just transition time, I got married I got pregnant and I was, I re returned back to Ann Arbor, married and pregnant. 
and ready, ready to have my son in the summertime and then started school that September. My professors knew that I was really interested in, you know, health uh, after my, the experience with my mom. They said, Gloria, you know, there's a project at, you know, with some professors who are doing research on cancer survivors. Uh, it's mostly on breast cancer survivors. And they asked me if I was interested in being part of that project. And I was just really excited about the opportunity. I know that there are several people who have, uh, have or are or will go through this experience. And um, to be able to hear your story and to be able to see how you transitioned, um, I know is going to be very helpful to those people who are listening. So thank you so much. Um, because, you know, sometimes we're, we, we can feel like we're in a silo where it's only about school and then life really happens and, and you have to make adjustments. Um, and, and you made those adjustments and then you continue to make adjustments. And I think that's encouraging to others um, along their path. You know, you, you're not stuck. Um, there are options. And one thing you highlighted, um, even with your fiance and his support is just having people around you to help encourage you. Um, and even with your mother's motivation, you know, to keep going on, to keep moving. Um, and I love how you even merged it with your research interest eventually, you know, just to kickstart, uh, getting back into the flow of, of back of academia and not just forcing yourself to turn off one part of your life, uh, because of the transition. Yeah. And I think that, um, it, I, I'm going to be very honest. It was very difficult. I mean, it was, and I'm sure a lot of people probably have gone through this. I was 28 years old and I was really upset. I was like, I, I, mom is too young. She was only 58 and why me and why now? And I was really angry. And so my professor just said, Gloria, you know, you need to put that energy into more productive, doing something productive. Um, you got great skills and you got great ability and uh, you got a lot of talent and you're very motivated. I know this is what you're passionate about. So I had, I think the key thing is I had really supportive people who uplifted me at a time where I was really down and out. And it was professors, it was friends, it was other students, uh, you know, that were, that now are my colleagues. And I remember my professor saying, Gloria, you know, I was, I was upset that I had to leave. He said, this university has been here since 1800 something. He goes, and we're not going anywhere and we're here for you. So when you're ready, when you're good and ready, we're here to support you. And so um, I was very fortunate to have some, have some very supportive um, mentors. You know, the mentors around me have been really critical. I always tell my dad, going back to my dad, my, my dad said, you always have to build a team, right? I'm very successful you know person brings a group of people team a team approach to help you know move you forward but you have to give back to your team you have to nurture your team in that process you know and so that's kind of my approach that's been always my approach uh, and i tell students the same thing when i mentor them that you need to build a good team around you and you have to have a very diverse group of people that, and everybody plays an important role 
in achieving that goal, but you also have to give back. You know, my dad always said that I have to share and give something to nurture that team. Otherwise, they're not going to be there anymore. They're going to, they're not going to, they're just going to move along. What keeps you motivated now? I know you have several roles at the university and your mentor. So you're, you're, you're giving back in more ways. What keeps you motivated to keep moving forward? You know, the, what motivates me, number one, is to see the success of other students. So I have seen, I have been successful because other people have helped me. And it's just giving back, right? Some people say, well, you need to pay it forward. Well, now I'm giving back. I have to give back what others have given me. And um, in that success that I have been able to uh, experience has been because other people have supported me. So what motivates me every day is how I could touch other people's lives and making their lives better, right? Um, and so that's that's what motivates me. People say, what, what makes you happy? When I see other people successful uh, in what they want to do in their lives, happy, that makes me happy. It's, it's a good day, right? I, I always like that. Now, the other thing that wakes me up and motivates me is to confront some of those challenges. There's a lot of barriers and challenges that we face um, in closing the gap, you know, in creating opportunities. And so I'm ready to take on that challenge. Right? Uh, you know, my, my, my mom and dad said, Gloria, you know, it's not going to be easy. My mom used to say, Gloria, she was very famous, uh, feminist, and she was like, Gloria, you know, it's changing for women, but it's still going to be hard for you. You know, the situation for women has improved, but you're still going to be dealing with a lot of problems with the sexism. And so um, I wake up every morning with the, the, the challenge, welcoming the challenge to hopefully eliminate some of the barriers to make life a little bit more easier for people to have access and have a healthy, healthy and happier life in whatever endeavors that they're working on. Um, or whatever they want to achieve. That, that's what brings me, that's what motivates me every day. And then the other thing is, is that um, I really feel that, uh, and I think people probably, I don't know, they'll kind of see this kind of depressing, but I, my mom and dad said, Gloria, you only have a short period of time in this world, right? And you, you want to make the best of it, you know? They, it's really short. And if you think about it, you put your life on a timeline. It is. It's really short. Mm -hmm. No pierdas el tiempo, my mom and dad say. Ay, Gloria, no pierdas el tiempo. You know, every day, it's a, from a farm worker point of view, she was really structured. Uh, you know, every day, every time, everything mattered. Every day mattered. Every weekend mattered. So um, she's like, no pierdas el tiempo. And my dad was the same way. So... I remember even when I was dating my, my husband, I told him, look, I've got things to do and places to go. And if you want to be with me, you want to do that, you come along with me. If you don't, don't waste my time. I won't waste your time either. And that was, a, that was the kind of attitude I had. And he said, you know what? You're right, Gloria. Okay. I said, well, you're going to come along with me. Come along for the ride and for the, I love you know, it. For the adventure. I have two more questions for you before we close out. 
what advice do you have for Latinas in higher education who are considering a, doc a doctorate or are interested in becoming a professor? I think women, the Latina women need to uh, see themselves as capable. You are competent. It is possible. And uh, you just need a good team around you. You need to find the people around you to support you to achieve that, that PhD. Um, the other thing I would say is, is don't doubt yourself. And if you do, go find yourself somebody who can, can kind of knock that doubt out of you. Because we do doubt ourselves. And then the other piece is we do have fears. You know, we're always scared. We're scared of failing. But if you fail, you have to learn from that failure. I have failed in lots of different ways, but I've learned from my mistakes and learned from failure. And I, you know, I, I look for people to help me rise up. So you want to reach out to other people who can be supportive in your goal, but do not doubt that you can, you can't do this. You can do this is what I would tell people. Well, you need to have a plan. You need to plan it out, and it can't be a, a plan with just you in it. You need to open it up and include other people, many people who are different from you, to help you achieve that goal. Let's do this. You got me motivated. Why, why do you yes. think it's important for us to have spaces where we can share the stories of Latina professors, to have this intergenerational, intercultural exchange uh, in, in academia? You know, there's just... There's a special, it's, there's a special, I would say, convivencia or a special community that is created when Latinas share other Latina, other, uh, share their experiences with other Latinas. And that there's a shared experience, right? That um, those who are not Latinos may, don't understand. There's this something special. It's a great question. But when you hear other people, uh, and I hear that when I was a graduate student, I heard a story from another Latina. I was able to relate. I was inspired. Um, I felt that that person understood what I was experiencing and what I was feeling. And what I needed to say. It's like that purse. I didn't know what the words or the feelings I was feeling, but by having other role models explain and share their story, then se me aprendió el foco. I'm like, oh, that's what I've been feeling. And I'm not alone, right? That's why it's so important for us to tell our stories with each other, share this information so that people will feel, no, it's not about you. And you're not alone. This is something that we experience. And this is how we overcome these barriers or these feelings that we impose maybe on ourselves, that we can overcome these things. But we need that community of support where we support one, enough, one another. Thank you so much, Dr. Martinez Ramos, for your time, your wisdom, and your voice. Um, before we close out, is there anything that you'd like to share before we, we leave today? I have one last thing I want to say, and I do want to say something that I think that some women feel guilty when they go to graduate school, and I'm here to tell you to not feel guilty. If anything, that doesn't get you anywhere. If anything, 
your children will be very proud. Your children and your grandchildren will be very proud that you achieve what you achieved if you get a master's degree and a PhD. And that is a it's a it's a huge monument for you and your family. So I I would tell other Latinas that don't feel guilty about and don't be apologetic that you can't spend time with your children. That what you're doing and investing in yourself and your education is for your children and your grandchildren and for la comunidad. And la comunidad needs to see that, needs to embrace that. And we were all we are all better when we do this, when we embrace everyone to have an access, equal access to education. Thank you for those wise words. They are very on point. Uh, thank everybody for tuning in to Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice at Rutgers University. I am your host, Bianca Neal, and I'd like to thank especially Dr. Mary Beth Gaspin, Brandy Jones, and Priscilla Pierre.